You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now you wanna get mixed up in the family business? Introducing the Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Jamie Dumont. I'm Rob Russo. And this is The Fabulous Invalid. Tonight, you may notice that we are coming to you from Orso again, the lovely Orso restaurant in Times Square. Off Times Square. Off Times Square. On Restaurant Row. I can't get these offs and ins and ons. (laughs) Your ins and offs and ons. No, I'm always saying, I'll be the guy saying, in Broadway today. (laughs) So, I'm a fool. What can I say? Uh, Well, tonight we have joining us... um, I, I want to say legendary, legendary set designer. We say legendary about everybody. Well, but he is. He's a big he deal. He David is. Rockwell, um, whose work you will surely know if you've been, if you've seen a Broadway show in the last 15 years at least. He, he's uh, a very big deal. He's a very big deal. Like, it, was, it was hard to research him because he has done so much, everything. Right. It's, it's, it's impossible to fathom all of the work that he's done in his... Well, and you know, the one thing I've learned from doing uh, a lot of biographies to prep my, my boss and my other job, is um, the longer someone's bio is, usually the less they've accomplished, right? You know, so when you look, when you read someone like David Rockwell's bio, um, it's so crisp because what it contains is so much, if that makes sense, right? A sentence like, oh, you know, he's got a, a firm of 250 people, like, oh my gosh, think of the incredible amount of design work that they're doing. You know, with a 250-person firm. All over the world. <laughs> All over the world. Yeah. Yeah, he's, uh, he's unlike no other person that works on Broadway. I think that's true. See, I got it right. Yeah. On, Broadway. on Broadway. Very good, very good. Cool. Well, I've just come uh, from London. Short trip to London. La la. Uh, where we learned that things play in the West End, not on the West End. Right? Thank you, Tracy Bennett. Thank you, Tracy Bennett. Uh, no, so I've just come back and um, had a nice, quick little trip. I try to get to London at least once a year, if not more, because there is so much cross-pollination now. Aren't you going in a few weeks? I am going again next month. You call me out here. Because uh, I couldn't resist. Well, there's... Only because I have access to your calendar, oh, you which go. you were foolish to give right, me. Right, right. Well, you know, there, there's just there's so much um, cross-pollination, you know, these days that it's it's really exciting to to see things over there that come here and vice versa. Um, okay, what did you see? So I saw, so this trip ended up being a little musical trip. I saw three musicals. Um, Hades Town, which is a new musical that was at New York Theatre Workshop in 2016 um, and is now at the National Theatre in London in a pre-Broadway 
um, stent. Once upon a time there was a railroad line Don't ask where, brother, don't ask where It was a road to hell Oh, it was hard times It was a world of gods And men It's an old song the same and they was always singing in the back of your mind everybody meet the face and then i saw dream girls which is big splashy revival of the the famous which i have not seen this production six times right that's right jamie has not seen it he could not tell me exactly where to sit at the savoy i did tell you where to sit (laughs) (laughs) down to the seat number Curtis says it's the best thing for the group. What about what's best for me? He feels the dreams can cross over. What about how I feel? But when we're famous, I'll write great things for you. Effie, do it for me. What about me? The, the last show I saw um, was Company, Ooh. which, oh my gosh. I, it, it, for those who are listening, if you have an opportunity to see it in London, please do. Do what you can to get a ticket. Um, I absolutely was blown away by this production. So if you don't know, the, the, the novelty, and I hate using that word because it makes it sound like a gimmick, but the novelty of this production is that uh, Bobby, the lead character, um, is uh, B-O-B-B-I-E, Bobby, a woman, uh, this time, um, with Sondheim's blessing uh, and a few lyric and character changes. Um, we now have a female lead of the show that is about, uh, nor- usually about a bachelor, you know, negotiating bachelorhood uh, among all of his married friends. Um, and I have to say, it is... I, I also hate to use this word because it feels overblown, but revelatory. It totally just cracks open this musical, and it hits in such a different way. It was really quite amazing. I'm very curious. Yeah, yeah. And I will say, I mean, one thing that... I, someone tweeted this, and I could not agree more. I wish I had written down who tweeted it. Um, you know, Company is a perfect musical, as is, right? It does not need to be fixed. And so this isn't, a, this isn't an attempt to fix. It's not Merrily We Roll Along. No offense to the Merrily We Roll Along fans out there. But that's lightly, Russo. <laughs> That is a show that, you know, has is, is sort of never worked, right? You, you might love the score. You might it's love true. the story. It, but it's, it's true. just it, never worked. And I'm it, eager to see the production that's coming around about uh, this winter um, at their off-Broadway space, the Laura Pels. Um, but Company is a perfect musical. So this, this is not an attempt to fix it in any way. It's, it's just an, 
it's a way to see it through a new lens. Um, and it's really thrilling, especially for a show that you know so well and that does have such good bones. Um, you know, to hear Being Alive sung by a woman in the context of the show. You know, Bernadette Peters does it in Carnegie Hall, right? And it's amazing and, and powerful and beautiful. But in the context of the show, to arrive at that moment... Um, or it's, it's, it's sort of timeless, this production, right? It's not specifically set in the 70s. It's not right. specifically set... Now, however, there are cell phones, correct? Right, right. So I, I will say, you know, despite the fact that I just um, called it a perfect musical, it, it is a perfect musical, but one challenge of doing company as the years go by is that it really is a period piece. It's hard to, to perform that show without respecting the fact that it was written in 1970 because of references. What's wrong script. with 1970, Rob? Nothing wrong with 1970. <laughs> but if you do want to, to set it in the present, there's no way to really do it without making some changes. And Sondheim has actually himself made those changes. So we know they're approved uh, and given us a version that I think will be able to live on whether or not it's a female or male Bobby. The, the lyric changes that, that update the cultural references and the temporal references, I think, will come in handy for the future. I'm curious because I can't imagine a company that's not set in the 70s. But I'm a, I'm a geezer that way, right? right. Like I, it's hard for me to make my brain... I, do new tricks. I my one of my cardinal rules is will travel for Sondheim, right? So I I go everywhere to see any Sondheim production that I possibly can, especially Company. Company's you know one of my all time favorites, if not my favorite um, Sondheim musical. And so I've seen six or seven different productions. I have seen productions that try to set it in the present, and it doesn't really work unless you really commit to it. And the only way to really commit to it would be to have to change some of the references. Um, so this is an exciting production. I really hope uh, there was some gossip in the, in, the, uh, in the New York Post about it potentially coming to Broadway. I really hope that happens. Um, if only because this, this, this production deserves a longer life and a, a bigger audience. Well, let's hope it comes in. But speaking of coming in, I see that uh, Mr. Rockwell is oh. walking through the door, so I think we should uh, wrap it up. <laughs> Perfect. Joining us at our usual table this week is Broadway set designer David Rockwell. You'll know David's work from such shows as Hairspray, Kinky Boots, and She Loves Me, for which he won the 2016 Tony Award. This season alone, he'll be represented on Broadway by Pretty Woman, The Nap, Kiss Me Kate, and Tootsie. What you might not know, though, is that David is also the founder and president of the Rockwell Group, a 250-person, award-winning, cross-disciplinary architecture and design practice that he founded in 1984. The firm's work ranges from restaurants, hotels, airport terminals, and hospitals to festivals, museum exhibitions, and of course, Broadway set designs. David, we're so delighted to have you with us at Orso tonight. Great Welcome. To <laughs> Thank you. Before we get into the theater, uh, which is what we would very much like to talk to you about, I, I have to circle back to the beginning of your career because I find it wonderful and astonishing that you started the Rockwell Group in 1984 when you were in your late 20s. And now you have offices in Shanghai, Madrid, and New York. I think those are the three, correct? Yep. And what were those early years like? What were your, what were, who were your first clients? What, what, what was going on in 1984? Well, you know, now looking back on it, things always seem neater and more symmetrical and more linear. But the truth was, um, for a bunch of reasons, uh, my earliest, earliest love was theater. And then it morphed into um, an interest in architecture, having to do with where we moved and, 
And uh, I was lucky enough to find um, an education that included my love of theater and my love of architecture. And I always knew I was going to end up in New York. There was something about coming to New York, and, and certainly that had a lot to do with the theater. And um, so my earliest work as an architect was literally any job I could get. First of all, I worked for um, a number of firms when I got out of architecture school, and actually every year when I was studying, I'd come to New York and work for a different architect. Um, and I found a way to take that love of performance in a love of how design creates um, memories and morph that into to architecture and, and was lucky enough to get a lot of people interested in, in hiring us. So um, uh, it was a sort of messy. It felt like every project was life and death. Um, <laughs> and I sort of stumbled forward with a huge amount of interest in how design can connect people. You know, as you, as you walk around New York, I'm still amazed um, how at the ground level, New York is still messy and vital. I think that's what attracted me to the city. Oh, the first project on my own was a six-week design and construction renovation of La Paragore, where we moved in a number of contractors, including people who were building sets for La Mama. It was like a, it was like an Amish barn raising uh, for La Paragore, and I didn't know you weren't supposed to do that, so that was my first project on my own. Wow, that sounds a little bit like um, they tell stories about the, the design of Studio 54 and how they didn't realize they weren't supposed to be doing absolutely everything that they did while they were making that building. Um, so when, what was the actual first show that you worked on? Was it Off-Broadway or was it Rocky Horror? The first show I almost did. So as... Um, as, as I became more successful as an architect and as I started to understand that theater was what I was researching to talk about in the built world, in the architecture world. I was taking ideas from the theater and I actually gave a, a talk at the TED conference, I guess in 94 or 95, when I was advised, don't speak about your profession, speak about something you're an amateur or that you love. So I put together this probably overproduced talk on the relationship of theater and architecture, and I extracted four or five ideas like transformation, right? We take, we take for granted that in theater, things are transforming in front of us. In architecture, you walk through it. Um, and I had been sort of working peripherally in and around theater, and I started to meet with directors and started to sketch. Uh, and the first show I almost did was Susical. Oh, um, sure. And the gods aligned that that wasn't my first show. <laughs> Although we built a model for it, which many directors saw. Uh, and then Daryl Roth and Jordan Roth uh, called and said, how would you like to do the Rocky Horror Show with Chris Ashley? I had never seen the movie because as a teen, I, I was living in Mexico, so... You know, my popular culture was more like canteen flats and bullfights, and <laughs> I rented the movie, and I said, you know, I love the idea that you guys are reaching out to me, but I got to tell you, I thought my show, my first show was going to be like the Cherry Orchard at BAM. I was, <laughs> I was thinking it was going to be, you know, sort of an 
opposite pole to my more populist day job. And, well, and Salsa Circle in the Square is sort of a daunting first theater to work in. It was actually originally at the Henry Miller. Oh. And so Chris wow. and I walked through it. I fell in love with Chris. And when I asked Chris what about the show compelled him, um, we talked about how it's about self-creation. You know, it's about, it's about audience participation. And I realized this is the perfect first show. I walked into Circle in the Square and met Paul Libin and had an idea about the floor rotating, um, which uh, he was both up for and Raul Esparza was happy to stand in the middle of while it rotated. <laughs> so it became like an amazing first experience. I still have my red boa from the goodie bag that you could purchase or get, I guess. That's right. Uh, I do remember that. the red velvet walls with the bodies coming out of it? Sure. Yeah, that was a tough sell. things I determine that makes a great design project is when you don't know the answer before you begin. And I think that comes from opening yourself up to new experiences. If you don't know the answer before you begin, how do you know you found the right answer? How do you know when the answer hits? Well, there's no right answer. <laughs> That's part of the, the thing. And um, you know, I think you have to start out with your research long before you get to the project. You, you, if I have to say the one quality of every designer who works at Rockwell Group and what I try and bring to theater projects is a sense of curiosity. You know, what digging deeper and deeper and deeper, which I think relates to those early experiences in Mexico of, of uh, chatting and taking your time. And um, I remember... When uh, at, right after uh, La Paragore, I was offered a Japanese restaurant called Sushi Zen. Oh, sure. Which uh, was really the breakthrough project for me. And I always tell young designers when I'm starting to work with them, don't put every idea you've ever had into your first project. Well, I didn't listen to that advice. So <laughs> I got Donna Granada, who was a costume designer at the Santa Fe Opera Festival, to work with me on this 100-foot-long silk mural. Um, and it became a, a, a kind of obsession um, to get that project right. It's all very theatrical. It is very theatrical. Well, speaking of theater... And go let ahead. me just say, when architects use the word theatrical, I think most of them aren't referring to the most interesting part of theatrical, which isn't looking theatrical but it is honoring an audience. And you know, that's the thing that I think is so incredible about the, the, this, this ditch in these theaters is 
you know, they constantly creating new work for this audience. In, in, in architecture, um, many architects prefer to photograph their buildings without people. I think people make the building more interesting. And so my driver is really designing from the inside out in designing from what it's going to be like to walk through, what the choreography of a space is. So there, there really are very direct connections to um, how an audience and a performer performance work together in theater and in architecture. That's interesting that you say choreography because I feel like even down to the service in the restaurant once it's built, the waiters, all of that's choreographed and that all of that is a bit of theater. So it really is, it really, it, it is all theatrical from the minute you walk into the door until you're given your check at the end of a meal. And a lot of what makes good design is invisible. In theater, um, you know, in many cases, the set doesn't want to be the thing you're focusing on. If it's a comedy, um, you know, you don't necessarily want the set to be funny. You want to create a kind of setting for the, the jewel of the action. And that's true in a restaurant. If you go to a restaurant and the meal comes and it's cold, it may be that the kitchen is too far away from the table or there's not a service station. There's sort of basic... Um, crafting of the experience that, that um, has a lot to do with what is a, is a guest you, you experience. I, I had a, a, an experience on a project called uh, Lucky Guy for George Wolfe. It was Nora Ephraim's last play. And there was a scene that took place in the late 70s, which was the time I came to New York and the time George came to New York. And it was about a journalist named Mike McAlary. And there was a scene that took place in a restaurant. And I thought, I got this covered. <laughs> and uh, it was a banquette. And I, I love banquettes. They're the most personal part of the restaurant. They're something you touch, you hug. You know, you think about Hollywood booths, different kinds of booths. So we created this banquette and we put it on stage in tech rehearsals. And George kept saying, you know, they're having trouble with that banquette. It's, they seem to, so I said, well, let's make it wider, let's adjust it. And they still couldn't get the banquette right. And I was thinking, God, if there's one, if there's one piece of furniture, I understand it's the banquette. And, and it turned out the truth was um, it needed to be free of a banquette because what they were trying to do was not be confined by the walls around it. So we came up with another way to to do that same scene, but it was it was a humbling and interesting moment uh, that says, as a designer, you always need to be aware of what's going to serve the piece, what's going to serve the play, what's going to create the, the strongest connection. So you actually answered a question I was going to ask a little bit later, which was how much of the of the actor experience or what's happening on stage changes your design. But it sounds like it happens more often than not. Where you, where you load in and then suddenly it's not working for whatever reason. Well, that's a complicated question because so much is predetermined. And, um, uh, you know, there's so many different ways directors like to work about how much flexibility is built into um, the dynamic. Uh, one of the things we're discovering in Tootsie, for instance, having been out of town in Chicago, is um, 
there are moments, and there's a restaurant on that, the second scene is a restaurant, we're, we're working on how to sequence the transitions so the audience feels each one of those transitions more. So um, the scenic pieces aren't changing. What's changing is the rhythm based on uh, working with the actors in, 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 in uh, Michael's apartment, which is a full stage, almost like a Neil Simon comedy inside of a musical. Um, you know, that's changed a great deal based on how the actors are using it and how uh, Scott Ellis is, is, uh, is using it. So that will get a lot of reworking. Is there a typical sequencing when a show is being developed in terms of design? So is, for me, it would seem like a set, like, like the set design would have to come first. But is that always the case? It's usually the case. Right. Um, and, and everything else sort of builds off of your design. So what we'll do is we'll sit with the script and do a scene-by-scene -scene breakdown mm -hmm. and do a lot of research. And research um, isn't always in the... Ob you know, in, in the case of Tootsie, one of the things that intrigued me and was daunting <laughs> was the number of musicals that have been set in New York City. So, you know, as opposed to being afraid of that, we sort of dove deep into that history of, of musical set in New York, and we thought about what would be the kind of unique take of this, and lots of image research, lots of texture research, and I found um, silhouettes of the city that had a very crisp line, and we started to do watercolors and thought, you know, in, in fact, there is a very interesting thing about Michael discovering things about himself and the relationship of Dorothy and Michael creating a city that is both masculine and feminine. So it led to this uh, sharp watercolor world that, um, you know, that wouldn't have been a, a, a first choice. So we'll do a scene-by-scene -scene breakdown. We'll sit with a director. I remember the case of Hairspray. We sort of over-delivered. And, and by the second meeting, we had a room full of way too much design. <laughs> and um, Jack O'Brien put his arm around me, and he said, why don't we take everything out of the room that doesn't make you fall in love with Tracy Turnblad? And so understanding what the backstory is um, is, is critical. Mm -hmm. On Hairspray, did you start with the light wall, or did that come later? Um, it came pretty early on. Um, because we started to think about the 60s and um, the NECA wafers, which is what the white world was based on, um, and the sort of tie-dyed... Oh, it's not light bright, it's NECA wafers? No, there are two things. The, uh, uh, the nicest kids in town, that wall background, was based on NECA wafer colors. Ah. The light bright wall, we actually had a light bright toy. We had lots of toys, and we were playing with that. And it was, I believe, the first show to use LED in that way. Um, so it was almost like big vacuform Tupperware with a small LED light in it. So that came early on. What was interesting is once we had that device is understanding where to unleash that, mm -hmm. which right. was welcome to the 60s. The same is true in, in, in Tootsie. You know, we're following Michael's journey to be a superstar. And at the end of the first act, he, uh, 
he unleashes his real ambition about that, and New York becomes this uh, sort of Times Square-like barrage of lights. One of the questions I'm most interested in when I begin a design is, what's the arc? What, what's the journey the audience is going on, and how do we represent that in the set? When you think about it, directors have such an interesting job because they're trying to get the best out of each one of the creatives they're working with. And I find a director who says, I want this, and shows you what they want, in some ways stops the creative process from ever getting more involved in that. So it's a, it, you know, everyone wants to have a chance to say what they want it to be, but you want to be able to play together. And when you're, when you're designing a show, when do you start showing ideas or designs to the director or to the team? How early? Because you mentioned that, you, mentioned that you, you do a lot of research. It sounded like for Hairspray, you got an actual light bright. It sounded like you got toys and other materials in which to be inspired by. Well, so in the case of Kiss Me Kate... We, we, we met early on because I had two observations I wanted to talk to Scott about. One was in the research, so much of it is this backstage um, story, and so many beautiful images of backstage are kind of atmospheric and dark, and, and Scott knew he wanted to see the opening number. He wanted to be a peek into that backstage world that evolves in front of the audience. But the show within a show, The Chaming of the Shrew, requires a kind of body, energetic thing. And we looked at those two contrasting worlds. And then in addition to that, he said, well, I was intrigued that most productions of Kiss Me Kate in some ways treat the show within the show is an archetype. And um, we said, well, what if the show within a show had a slightly stronger concept? What if it doesn't look like a rental version of The Taming of the Shrew? So that led to, well, what would that concept be, which became a sort of color idea that each one of the four scenes of The Taming of the Shrew in some ways is all based on one color. So it does give it a slightly stronger concept. So we had to get into that early because it affected what Jeff Mashey would do. And we wanted to make sure that this, the, um, that, that mixture of an invitation to this backstage world and the kind of comedy edge could work together. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? 
Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. So I realize that an answer that you, you there, there's there's no every time you think you have an answer like I can think of projects where I showed the director something early on and they looked at it and said well what's that we can't do that and then four months later you come back to that having been through the process and that turns out to be the right the right thing the right answer and there's no I mean there's there's no that's a hard question to answer because every show is different and and obviously it. It, it's going to relate to whatever it is you're working on, how quickly you show people whatever, or what that process is And in is many like. cases, as I said, the research and the ideation starts long before you get to the project. Um, right. Which it sounds like for you, on all of your projects, no matter what you're designing, it sounds like that is the most, one of the more labor-intensive parts, is the research, is all that sort of back story, that back work that you do before you start the hammer and nails and, you know, that work. I'm curious if you um, could regale us with some of your uh, inspiration and process behind the renovation of the Helen Hayes, um, which obviously is a huge project um, that was very exciting for Broadway. Um, Second stage theater having uh, purchased the Helen Hayes and completely renovating it uh, through your design. Um, What was your vision for that for that theater, and how, how did it come about? Well, it's an essay question. <laughs> um, I, I am still in awe of the Broadway theater community. Mm. You know, I just think it, um, the fact that everyone, in, in, in architects talk about collaboration as having like an internet site set up where you collaborate online, and in theater, you're in the room together doing your work. And so when we were approached about the Helen Hayes, it was equal parts excitement and terror. Like, I didn't really want to... I, I wanted to treat it with the respect it deserved. But at the same time, I think that one of the things that's so interesting about theater is it morphs and changes. So we... Um, did research into the Helen Hayes. It opened in 1912. It had been renovated many times. It was open as a 299-seat theater um, with no balcony. And then I think 2000, uh, 19, 1912 it opened up. 1917, I believe, the balcony was added. It had been landmarked in the 80s, and the landmark designation uh, designated the outside and the inside, the audience chamber and the lobby, for that matter. Carol Rothman, like a good director, like a very proactive good director, <laughs> once a week we would get together and she would emphasize that she, she wanted this to be a place for contemporary American drama. When it opened, um, Winthrop Ames, who was the original builder of it, built it is an antidote to bigger commercial theater. And it felt like this aha moment where her mission and that mission so aligned. So we started by understanding and believing 
that you could respect the building, but to repaint it, to try and recreate it, what it was in 1912, given that it had no balcony, it had these tapestries uh, um, that were no longer there. There were so many elements that were different that we started to explore how could you both restore it and give it new life? How could you look forward and look, look backwards at the same time? And again, as I, I said, you got to start your interest long before you get to the project. I've always been interested in theaters like the New Amsterdam or many of Joseph Urban's interiors that use color in a very saturated way. So when we looked at the tapestries that had hung there originally, which were reproductions, by the way, done by scenic artists even in 1912, we started to explore the idea of taking one of those tapestries and creating one color um, that would immerse the audience and do this pixelated kind of contemporary translation of one of the tapestries. Um, And it came out of Carol thought what she wanted was a contemporary object. And I couldn't get my mind around an object and thought maybe the better way to do it was create a contemporary um, rapper. Meaning she wanted the image painted to be contemporary? No, before, long before we got to the image, the notion of how we would make it historic and contemporary was let's put a thing in it, a proscenium, a chandelier, and something that represented um, current day versus historic. And when we came up with the idea of using color, um, she loved the idea, and then we met with landmarks, and um, you know, landmarks is there to protect historic interiors, but they agreed that that this was a good way to go, and we, we was that a difficult them. process to get them to agree, or were they on board right away? No, they're never bold. they're never on board right away because <laughs> it's bold what you've done. I mean, it's really it's it's beautiful, but it's very very daring. I think I think it's a real risk. Not a risk, but it's a it's a bold choice, and bold choices sometimes are met with resistance. Well. We had several strong arguments for that resistance. The first one, it is reversible. So it's paint. Right, right. <laughs> we restored all the molding. And, and I believe the monochromatic treatment actually celebrates the molding. It's a little bit like a monochromatic sculpture, more than trying to do some slavish reproduction of what we think the color looked like in 1912. Right. So... Um, I think we convinced him, A, it was the right thing to do, and B, it was reversible. Well, you also s- Landmarks always says no first. Right. Oh, <laughs> That's their job, right? To say no to everything, right? But like producers. Right. None that, that I've worked with, but <laughs> I've heard producers. some producers right. do right. that. <laughs> producers I work with always say, sure. Always? <laughs> always. Wow, you're a lucky man. It's, it's interesting or to me. Or delusional. Maybe that's just what I hear. May, well... Only you know that. <laughs> the the thing that I find so remarkable about the interior is is not only the pixelation, but how the single color, even though it, it, it gradiates, is that the right word term? Yeah. yeah. It makes an intimate theater much more intimate, which is fascinating because it is a small intimate space. There the smallest. isn't a, there isn't a bad seat in the house, right. and yet you've managed to make it feel even cozier. Well. Not to get overly analytic about it, but we, we, I, I've done um, research in every Broadway theater. 
and it came out of one of the theater owners wanted to build a new Broadway musical house. So I set aside a year to look at each theater and to see what worked and what didn't work. And what, what the Helen Hayes does is it gets darker towards the proscenium. So it's lightest at the back and the color ombre is darkest towards the proscenium. So in some ways it seeds control of the room to the set designer. And I was working on Lobby Hero. I had this very strange moment where I had to realize my job was to stop looking at the walls and, and you know, it was now. And that was a, a great gift that um, Carol and Tripp gave me to, to do the first show there. Do you think that that dark color towards the proscenium is going to forever influence other set designers on how they design, or does it free them to design whatever they want? Well, there's been three shows in there so far, each one totally different. Right. Um, so I think by ombreing to black, it basically passes the baton to the set designer. That's fantastic. What um, I'm fascinated by your year-long research yes, me too. on you Broadway. I could, I could feel I could mind. you take it, Rob, because I can. Well, feel no, it. I'm just curious. In, in in the course of that process, what are some other big takeaways that you learned or discovered about what makes a theater successful or not of the 41 Broadway houses that well successful in visual terms? Um, mm-hmm. Because you asked what theaters I'd love to work in. There are theaters where the backstage space is fantastic, the front of houses not magical. Right. There are theaters where the theater is beautiful and the lobby is awkward, you know, so um, they're sort of they're sort of heroic these theaters that have stood the test of time and um, one of the interesting things was so much of what defines I think a great physical theater experience is how that transition from the audience to the stage is handled. Mm. If you study, if you look at the Majestic, you look at the Schubert, or you look at the New Amsterdam, that zone of 20 feet or so, whatever it is that, that um, takes the audience and sort of shakes hands with the stage, how that transition is handled, because that's what really shapes the space. Um, that's, I think, one of the key things. Let's play a little fantasy football for a second. Let's say we got the Hellinger back. Yes. What would you do to it? Well, I haven't seen it in a while. I looked at photographs of the Hellinger because for Tootsie, we're going to the Marquee, which has lots of backstage space. But in terms of characters, they're pretty neutral, contemporary space. And we're creating the show that's a love song to New York and the theater community. So we're creating a rather elaborate proscenium. So I went back and looked at the Mark Hellinger. Um, What would I do with it? Um, I would hope that some great director would hire me to do the first show in there. (laughs) Um, There you go. We're working on a project on 30th Street called The Shed. New ground-up cultural institution. We're partnered with Diller Scafidio Renfro. We've been on for 10 years. And one of the things that's embedded in the building is ways that the shift from one show to another can minimize labor and maximize the show. So if you were looking at the Mark Hellinger and it was going to be coming back online, it would be interesting to think about what can you do to the theater that would be most show-ready, that the shows can get in and out, 
with as much of the money going into the show and not the theater as possible. Well, one of the things that I, which we did at, at the Hayes, the light, you know, we, we tried to work with Josh Dax and lighting positions, everything we could think about to allow that turnover to happen. Well, you know, one of the things that is, uh, I think, increasingly becoming a source of frustration, probably for producers more than anyone else, but certainly for audience members and me as a critic, is uh, the limitation built into just about every Broadway theater, except for the circle and the square, of the proscenium. That they're all pretty much structured the same way. Yeah. There's different you know, sizes, different sight lines. Um, as a designer, is that ever a source of frustration for you? Do you ever yearn to want to break free of that proscenium? Because there are other spaces in New York that don't have it and are doing really exciting large-scale works. Totally agree. And I think, that, I think that's a matter of not trying to force a concept that isn't meant to be in a Broadway theater and a Broadway theater. Mm. Um, I was lucky enough to see Hal Prince's Candide and then really lucky to work with Hal Prince many years later to create the theater for Phantom of the Opera in Las Vegas. And um, you're meeting with Hal Prince in his office. He has the model of uh, Candide, which I believe was Eugene Lee. Um, and it reduced the seating capacity by 800 seats or something in the Broadway. So, you know, it was extraordinary, but you have to have, if, because when you break the proscenium, come out that far, um, you have to re-rake the balcony for, 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 for sight lines. And there's so many constraints that what you're saying is absolutely critical. And I think when there's a concept that isn't meant to live within a Broadway theater, that's forced to live within a Broadway theater, I think sometimes you're not getting the creative result you want, and you're spending a lot of money to torture the theater right. physically to do things right. that it's not going to do. <laughs> Could Hal Princess Candide happen today? Could you gut a theater of its seats? Well, I don't think they gutted it. I think what they did was kill seats by coming out in the audience and eliminating the balcony. Um, you know, uh, Natasha Pierre, uh, spent a vast amount of money with an incredible reworking of that theater. The budget had to include restoring it, though. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a daunting challenge. It sounds um, very cost-preventative to do anything like that. You know, look, in, in the fantasy football scenario, <laughs> there are thoughts I've had that I've spoken to theater owners about um, ways to work within the theater. One of the things I'm interested in architecture and in theater is less hardware and more software. So certainly can't qualify the shed as not a lot of hardware because it's a big new building, but it's going to be remembered for the software. It's, it's being designed to allow productions to be the thing you remember. And, and I think you can, I think there are ways to create productions in Broadway theaters that in, in a way sort of linking to what Hal Prince did for, for Candide, where um, you're reducing capacity, but you're also not creating a big, expensive physical installation. Before we let you go, I know you have to venture on to somewhere else after this, we always ask everybody, what was that first show that did it for them? It can be a community theater, it can be Broadway. What bit you? 
What a great question. Well, Sheldon Harnick got an award last week that he asked me to give to him. Um, I was about the fourth speaker, and every speaker before me said their first show is Fiddler on the Roof. And I thought, <laughs> Jesus, there's my... Because that was the first Broadway show I saw. But you asked it in a different way. You said, what's the first show that impacted me? And it was when we did The King and I in Deal, New Jersey. And there were a couple things that I remember about it. One is there's photographs of the set, which are so not what I remember. I remember it rival Joe Melsiner. <laughs> of course. Uh, and I helped paint them. And I guess I was 12. I was in it as a, uh, one of the kids in the March of the Siamese Kids. Um, and I remember that incredible experience of my memory of it. And then I went back with my daughter not too long ago to look at the, the school in Deal, New Jersey, which was so dinky. And so it made me think about, um, you know, how in some cases our experience and memories and the things that drive us aren't dependent necessarily on all the bells and whistles. Um, when I saw Fiddler, which was my first Broadway show, the thing that I was bit with is how, and then I became a fan uh, and a student of Boris Aronson and started to collect his work, um, is how in theater, moments are created when all these elements work together. If you just took the design or the music or the movement or the story, it, it doesn't really work unless they're all unified. And then recently seeing Joel Gray's incredible production in Yiddish without Boris's set, without all of that, that circular movement without the turntable still linked to that experience. Yes, that's an, it's an, an it's funny. We, we talk about Fiddler a lot on this, on this podcast. On this podcast. Um, it really is, I think, that show for a lot of people. It's so, such a touchstone. Yeah. It really is. And Joel's production is, right. is magnificent. You know, one of the greatest gifts in my life in theater was um, making the set presentation of She Loves Me to Sheldon Harnick, uh, who is now 95, I think. But we become dear friends. And you just saw that look of incredible intelligence and curiosity. And then as we were teching the show, he was there every day with his wife, Margie, in the second row, just marveling at it. And it, um, it was like an amazing full circle. That's, um, that's high praise. Right. That's, that's quite a compliment. If well, I could sneak in one last question. Sure. And you might have answered it by, by bringing up She Loves Me. Um, but is there a show that you dream of putting your stamp on or your design to? Well... I had dreams of the king and I, but that didn't work out. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's so much of what I find about working in the theater is surprise. Mm. She loves me. I had never seen before. And I remember Scott Ellis telling me, you've got to do this, David. It's the perfect show. And as I started to, to delve into it. Um, so, no, there's no one thing I'm dying to do. There was, there was one thing I was dying to do that I did do, 
which is work in Central Park at the Delacorte, because I had been going there ever since I came to New York, and that was a totally divine experience on every level. Yeah. The, the level of help at stagehands and, and then being there in front of that audience. So I'm sort of open to new experiences and um, want to maintain that little bit of terror when you got a new project right. of making, you know, not, not knowing the answer. I think that's critical. As, that's the theater, right? That's the theater. <laughs> Aren't they redoing the Delacorte? I just read they are. They, they are redoing yeah. the Delacorte. So well, now I have to want to work in it again. I was going to say, well, you can get the inaugural production when they reopen. <laughs> and, and you know, the first production I worked on there was the Julius Caesar, which was very controversial. Oh, yes, yes I saw it. it. <laughs> <laughs> well, controversy is not such a, a bad thing. Controversy is not a bad thing. Well, thank you very much for coming down and chatting with us. It was what a, a treat. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. I like your little Orso <laughs> setup here. Yeah, it's a good little good little niche, a good little spot. It gets louder as we go on, yeah. but yeah. Uh, And do works. we hear the sound of Orso in the background? You will. Um, yeah. That's pretty great. Yeah, you will. Some atmosphere. As David Rockwell mentioned, and we talked about briefly, one of his many exciting new projects is The Shed. So you may be wondering, okay, I got a sort of a sense of what this is, but I'm not entirely clear. Well, you're not alone. First off, you may remember that the rail yards near New York Penn Station were rezoned as part of the city's 2012 bid to host the Summer Olympics. Well, that didn't really work out. But officials then solicited plans, as David mentioned, for a mixed-use development of offices, apartments, and retail that became known as Hudson Yard. One major condition put upon the developers of Hudson Yard by the city of New York, though, was that this sprawling new development complex includes space for a nonprofit cultural center. And thus, The Shed was born. The Shed, as David mentioned, will be New York's first multi-art center purposefully designed to commission, produce, and present all types of performing arts, visual arts, and popular culture. Driven by experimentation, innovation, and collaboration, the Shed will be a center for artistic invention, bringing together leading artists working in every art form with leading minds in the humanities and the sciences. If all that sounds still a little ambiguous, if not majorly ambitious, that's kind of the point. Alex Poots, the Shed's artistic director and the founding chief executive, recently told the New York Times, quote, the Shed is interested in the advancement of art forms, whereas other institutions are about preserving the treasures of the past, end quote. Its commissioning model will be to provide the space, support, and resources for practitioners to experiment with, produce, and present original work, offering new experiences to the widest and most diverse audiences possible. The Shed is not a rigid, purpose-built theater or concert hall or exhibition space. It is meant to be all of these things at once. And that's exactly where David Rockwell comes in. Nestled on a city-owned plot of land amid a cluster of soaring skyscrapers on the south side of Hudson Yard's development site, the Shed's physical space, designed uh, by David's firm, in collaboration with Diller, Scafidio, and Renfro, this building will be a six-story, 200,000-square-foot structure that will house two expansive, column-free galleries totaling 25,000 feet of museum-quality space, a 500-seat black box theater that can be subdivided into even more intimate spaces, event and rehearsal space, and a creative lab that will be provided free of charge for early career local artists. The Shed's most notable design feature, though, the thing that gives it its name, is its rolling outer shell that deploys over the plaza adjoining the building to create a 120-foot-high, temperature-controlled hall, or shed. 
When the shell is nested over the fixed building, the 17,000 square foot plaza next door will be open, outdoor public space that can be used for outside programming. And yet, when it expands, it'll become this soaring hall that can be used for just about anything. In a nod toward demonstrating what will make the shed different from other cultural institutions in the city, a recent open call for artists specifically focused on young practitioners based in New York rather than Europe, and made clear that the shed was open to and interested in all art forms, performing, visual, literary, comedy, fashion, design, science, and new media work. In fact, New York Fashion Week is already publicly considering moving all of its programming to the shed. For its first season, seven commissions have just been announced. Well, actually, I think eight, because David mentioned that there was an eighth announced today, uh, including a play by classicist writer Anne Carson and a collaboration between painter Gerhard Richter and the composer Steve Reich and Arvo Part. A live celebration of African music will will be produced by Quincy Jones and British filmmaker Steve McQueen. The Shed has a hard opening date of spring 2019. Its building and the first three years of programming are set to cost about $550 million, over $460 million of which has already been raised, including a $50 million grant from the city of New York and a $75 million personal donation from former New York mayor Michael Bloomberg, who made The Shed and Hudson Yard more broadly a personal priority of his administration. The Shed's vision is one of parity across all forms of art, creativity, and intellectual inquiry. And it will be housed in a building equally as visionary, thanks to David Rockwell and his collaborators. I, for one, can't wait to check it out. Jamie here. That's our show. Thanks for listening. I'd like to say a very special thank you to Orso Restaurant for hosting us tonight and for being so hospitable and their delicious food, as always. Uh, the Fabulous Invalid is a production of O&M Etc. and The Fabulous Invalid LLC. Our theme music is by Lucky Chops. Find us on iTunes and tune in next Wednesday. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.